I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers group curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers group curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geiser and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Lisa Murphy on Play, The Foundation of Children's Learning by Lisa Murphy. Let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club. So today we're going to be doing the introduction in chapters one through four of our new book for the month, Lisa Murphy on Play, The Foundation of Children's Learning by Lisa Murphy. We're really excited. This is a really fun book. Can't wait to get into it. But first, we're going to play a little game as we do. And today we're going to be playing this or that. Actually, Laura, before we get started, I have to talk to you. Looking at my desk right now as we're recording, I feel a little bit like I'm at brunch. I have so many liquid beverages. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what kind of beverage is not a liquid, but I have to just share with you what I have. <laughs> so I have my trusty bottle of water, as always. Of course. Good for hydration. I have my giant iced coffee okay, for energy. Yep. Special guest appearance by <gasps> Pure, Pure. <laughs> I cracked it open right before this and it just, I can't wait. It's delicious. <laughs> oh my goodness. So refreshing, right? <laughs> 100%. Anyway, just had to share that. <laughs> love it. I love to see Pure out in the wild actually being drunk. Doing its thing. Anyway, okay, this or that. I'm going to go first. And my question for you is this or that, card games or board games? Ooh. This is like on trend with what we're talking about, right? Games. <laughs> okay. When I'm on a vacation, I love playing card games. You know, I think growing up, my siblings and I would just always play like a lot of war and spit when we were on vacation visiting our great grandma up in Oregon at the beach like oh, you know fun. that's just really nostalgic for me and my fiance and I will do that sometimes we went to Hawaii once and we played so many card games yes. <laughs> so I feel like I might play more card games in my personal life obviously professionally a lot of board mm, games of a course lot of board oh yeah games. <laughs> yes what about you first of all spit I can't even remember the rules. How do Me you play? Neither. Like, Me... I know I played it when I was young. <laughs> Me neither. I have no idea. I have no idea. And that's how I am with a lot of games because I'll go years without playing card games. And then it's just luckily yes. we have the internet now. 
because these things used to have to be passed from one person to another by word of mouth. So your older brother would teach you. But yeah, when I want if I go, oh, yes. how do you play spit again? I just look it up. If you figure it out, let me know. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, we play a lot of board games in our jobs. I actually just got a really cute board game. I had used it when I was working with kids, but I had it kind of in a storage unit, like a storage container. And then I pulled it out for my daughter. And it's a game by Eboo, which Eboo. I love them so much. Do you have any games by them? No, I've never heard of Eboo. Oh my gosh. They make the cutest games and like really great puzzles for adults oh. and also kids. Okay. But this is a tea party game and it's really fun. It has like a spinner shaped like a teapot and you spin to like complete your tea party like setting, place setting. So uh -huh. you get like a plate and like a little sandwich and a treat like a fruit and a dessert it was so fun anyway. oh my gosh <laughs> I just saw a post on Instagram where a speech therapist wrote my daughter finally got all her toys back because it's the end of the year so she brings home all her speech therapy materials and her daughter's sitting there playing with like pop the pig and like <laughs> don't get me started on pop the pig this is probably an unpopular opinion of course I own it but I am not a pop the pig fan actually I think when I left my last school I might have left it for my slip up because she loves it so much I don't like playing pop the pig why <laughs> I'm baffled <laughs> is Asha gonna take my license away or my C's I away <laughs> <laughs> this is a hot topic. <laughs> no, the Type B SLP just did a bracket. Did you see that? Yeah, face off. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody chose, I chose Potato Head over Pop the Pig, but Pop the Pig was winning by so much. And I'm just like, what's wrong with me? Okay, Pop the Pig is, I love it. It's so simple. It's easy for anybody to understand how to play. And then I even have had fifth graders request it. Like even older kids on my caseload love it. Oh, I know. And I'm know, still confused. Like in the end, if you pop the pig, are you the winner or the loser? They want to pop it, but you are the loser, right? You want to pop it. No, the kids want to pop it, but you lose. If you pop, if you're, <laughs> if it's your turn where it pops open, I think you're the winner. Are you the winner? Oh my goodness. I think so. <laughs> Okay, that's a poll that we need to do. Wow. If you pop the pig, do you win or do you lose? And then let's see what people think. Because I bet it's split 50-50. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, feel, I always feel confused. I'm like, this game is so simple. Like, how do I not know? Okay, wait. Other popping games like Pop the Pirate? I've never played Pop the Pirate. Oh, they always break. You get to the end, you put the last sword in, and he doesn't pop. It is so anticlimactic. And the same thing with, like, the shark bite. All those popping games are just so touchy. They're so, if a kid touches it wrong, it doesn't work. So I'm just kind of over them. I buy them all, but then I get over them pretty fast. Well, Pop the Pig stands the test of it's time It's reliable. It's yeah, reliable. Yeah, it is. It, how is it really going to break? Like <laughs> That belly just keeps plastic. growing and growing. <laughs> it's dirty. I do want to take the opportunity to talk poorly about Honey Bee Tree. <laughs> That game, it's a no for me. It is a big no. I actually bought it for my daughter after seeing it so much on Instagram. I was like, this is so cute with the bees. And sticking all those leaves in there, no thanks. What a setup for like very little output. Okay, do you pull things out? 
and then you're trying not to let them drop. Yes, the bees. I have tumbling monkeys and kerplunk. And yeah, I think they're fun. But the setup is, especially when you're in a speech room, it's not practical unless you're talking with your kids while you're all setting it up together. But for me, I used to be like rushing between sessions to get all these sticks back in. Nightmare. <laughs> this is where Pop the Pig comes in. You just plop him down, shove all those burgers <laughs> in his mouth, and call it a day. <laughs> All right. Do you prefer to get new clothes or a new phone? Because I want to know if you're one of those people that gets the new phone every year. No. Don't think you are. <laughs> I guess I would prefer new clothes. But, you know, a new phone, I'm just not techie like that. Like if it does the job, it does the job. And honestly, I don't even like a lot of those new features. Like I had to get a new phone. So mine does have the face reading thing. Just kind of like freaks me out on a black mirror level, you know? I know. I know. And well, yeah, the face is annoying. No, and I agree. We were taking a Christmas picture this year and we just use our phones and we were excited because my fiance had the newest phone and his camera is so good. And then we were looking at the pictures and we were like, too good too many too, <laughs> too many <HD>. wrinkles too <laughs> many pores we had to switch back to my old iphone 11 because it's just a little fuzzier <laughs> wow so yeah new clothes but sometimes i do get that envy i'll see someone with their phone and it just looks a little nicer and you go like i want that but what do i want it for my phone's perfectly fine it's true <laughs> Okay, well, thank you for joining us for our game of this or that. And stay tuned as we get into the introduction in chapters one through four of Lisa Murphy on Play. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use Boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a Connect Four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> The best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP book club. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. 
right, let's get into Lisa Murphy on play. First of all, I love this book. It's so exciting. I have so many great things to say about it. But what's interesting to me is this book is sort of like part memoir, part manual about play, which I was surprised. I didn't know it would be so personal. We would learn so much about her. Yeah, I like learning her story. It feels like this is going to be more of a real book club where... (laughs) We're like discussing someone's (laughs) story. And, you know, for people listening, it's basically like the first two episodes, we're going to be covering her backstory, the why behind her whole theory and why she's so into play as the foundation for kids learning. And so, yeah, the first two episodes are going to cover a lot of her history. And then on the third episode, we really get into how to do it. Yes. But it makes sense. I mean, we have to know the foundation of where she came from. So in the introduction, she explains that play-based early childhood programming isn't just her personal preference, but it's actually supported in the research. So she says that rather than spending your energy on efforts to prove to people why this works, which, you know, anytime you try to prove something to someone, it's not really going to work anyway if they have their mindset on something. Instead, she puts the energy into connecting people to the evidence. So if somebody is challenging her, she says, prove it or like show where it's supported in the research. (laughs) And she brings up something called the binder challenge. So she recommends you get a binder and on the front you write playful learning equals school readiness. And then you can kind of go through and put anything in the binder that supports that concept. So You can do, I don't know, like an article, a photograph, maybe of a fun sign at a playground or different book titles or workshop notes, blog posts, research studies. And then whenever anybody comes to you and gives you a hard time about playing, which I love how she said this in the book. She said, when people come to you and say, play, you still play. Oh, my God, they're going to kindergarten in three years. How can you do this? (laughs) (laughs) You're supposed to take a deep breath and tell them, yes, playful learning leads to school readiness. And this binder is what supports it. And then you kind of like throw the binder at them and run away to make them coffee, which I thought was nice, honestly. Yeah, yeah. And then she kind of goes into a little bit about why this is the second edition of the book and why she revised it, which is that the DSM-5 came out with a different diagnostic criteria for ADHD and ADD, where now they're both the same diagnosis, ADHD. So she kind of wanted to revise the chapters that reference that and then took the opportunity to overhaul the whole book. And I also just wanted to comment that Lisa really loves the exclamation mark and I'm on board. It feels exuberant. I'm like, yes. Reading this book, it's like talking to a friend or just chatting with that teacher that you really love at the school. You know, it just feels like you're sitting there having a conversation. I love her writing style. Yes, 100%. I think she's not afraid to kind of like speak her truth as well, which I really admire. In chapter one, she's describing her formative experience at her preschool that she attended when she was young. When she was three, she started school at Mary's Nursery School. Miss Mary was her first teacher. And before I start describing this school, I will say, spoiler alert, I would like to live at this school. It sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So she said the first room is filled with architectural toys, wooden blocks, Legos, cars, carpet squares, dollhouses, big hollow blocks. And you're allowed to stay in this room until you were done playing. There were no adults like flicking the lights on and off, singing songs to get you to wrap it up, (laughs) or making you clean up before you were finished. 
The second room was a workshop where creativity was encouraged and there were easels, palettes, brushes, paints, watercolors, crayons, paste. I was very intrigued by paste. I had some questions about that. I think it just means glue. <laughs> oh, glue. I was like, paste? <laughs> what were you picturing? What a funny word. Paste. <laughs> so... The bathroom was also really child-centric. It had child-sized toilets, which I hope a child's bathroom at a school has. Shelves of books, like a small step to reach the sink, and children's artwork on the walls. I think this was in a house that they had converted into the preschool. So the former family room now served as a gathering area. There were couches, pillows, beanbags, a flannel board for stories, a piano, and many, many books. There were also tables for activities and snacks, and each one had a little red and white check tablecloth and low benches, which she said Miss Mary did on purpose to encourage engagement with peers. And the porch sounded amazing, too. It had boxes of dress-up clothes like capes and high-heeled shoes and feather boas, raincoats fireman boots, party dresses. And in the middle of the porch, there were more art easels and lots of paint and brushes. There was also a sand table filled with sand, scoops, funnels, egg beaters, flour sifters, wooden spoons, measuring cups, and muffin tins. And then once he moved off the porch into the backyard, there were swings, ladders, structures to climb, bikes to ride, hammers for pounding, ducks and chickens to chase, bunnies to hold, water to splash in, Nails and wood for building things, baby dolls for washing, and a real boat that you could just paint on and pretend in. Love that. And there was even a sand pit for digging with shovels and bubbles and a very tall metal slide right in the middle. So as she's standing there taking this all in, Miss Mary bent down, looked her right in the eye and said, go play. And from there, she was off and she loved it. She played there every day for the next two years. She had many great childhood experiences. But on her first day there, she had a crystallizing moment, which was really beautiful. So she said her favorite snack, which is really unusual for a three-year-old, was spicy jalapeno pepper jack cheese with crunchy red apple slices (laughs) so we know we've mentioned strange snack combinations before on the podcast our friend meg her doritos (laughs) and strawberry cream cheese yeah but lisa had a unique taste for snacks and so miss mary as they were playing outside they were getting really hungry on her first day and miss mary gave everybody an invitation to come in and eat snacks so again lisa really specifies that it was not a requirement there were no threats given out if Anybody didn't want to join. She just kind of said, if you're hungry, come on in. And of course they were. They've been playing really hard. So they came in and here comes Miss Mary holding the big snack tray. And on it were piles of crunchy red apples and slices of hot pepper jack cheese. So this made her feel so special. Like she said, it felt like being invited to a dinner party where the host made all your favorite foods because she wanted you to know how excited she was to have you there. And as Miss Mary put the snack tray down in front of Lisa, she leaned in and whispered in her ear, we are so glad that you are here. Really beautiful moment. Oh, I just got chills with you retelling it. And I just read this yesterday. (laughs) I know you're going to say something about this. I love the term crystallizing moment. I feel like on the internet, we hear a lot of people talking about core memories, core memories. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think, you know, you think of those as good, but a crystallizing moment is like, it could be good or bad, something that sticks with you. And this just was so beautiful. It made me think of Marilee Springer and social emotional learning, that thing where 
right in that moment, Lisa looked at this teacher with this tray of her favorite snacks and that just told her, you are welcome here. You know, we are excited to have you. This is your new home away from home. You can feel safe here. We see you. We love you. It's just so amazing. And it's such a small thing. Oh, love it. Yes. Yeah, I love it too. I mean, so she definitely says that like in that moment, she knew right then and there that she would become a teacher. And I think that is so beautiful. But you're right. So the thing about a crystallizing moment is it's just any moment of any given day that could be an experience that makes a lifelong impact. So this is a little bit of pressure, right? Because as teachers, you never know when this could occur for your students. So even if you're in a bad mood, a good mood, like you can't plan for this. It just happens. Ideally, it happens when we're at our best, but sometimes it happens when you're at your worst. And it's just another one of the reasons we have to be really fully present when we're with children and never, ever, ever underestimate the impact of what we do. And you're right. Miss Mary was really showing her she was aware of the children at her school and of their needs. And she probably called Lisa's mom and was like, hey, we're so happy to have Lisa join us. I just want to hear what her favorite snack is so I can make sure she feels really good on her first day away from you. Right. And that phone call made a lifelong impact on Lisa and became the why behind her work, the fire in her belly and the passion in her heart. So before I move on to chapter one, Laura, I wanted to tell you that actually I went to a preschool like Lisa's preschool that she described. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Was it at someone's home or was it? No, it was a center. It's actually right around the corner from where I live now. Uh I wanted my daughter to go there, but it's been bought out by a franchise. So it's not the same. But I remember... So my mom worked at the school. She was a preschool teacher. And so she brought me to school with her. And it's like the director was the nicest person. My mom loved her and had so many great things to say about her. I remember almost nothing of inside. I mostly remember the play yard because it was insane. Like exactly what she's describing. Big easels all over. You just kind of threw on a smock and went to town if you wanted. Yeah. They had a huge tractor tire in the middle of the yard that you could just kind of play in. It had sand in it. Yeah. A really, really big pumpkin, like jack-o'-lantern that was hollow and you could play in that. I remember there being ducks and chickens running around. Yeah. And it was just really magical. I remember a lot of fun sensory experiences. We would do cornstarch with water and sand and You know, they had science days where there was a special little like shed on the property that was like the science room and we would go there and that's where we did a lot of sensory stuff and they would have reptile men come with like snakes (laughs) and it was just, I really consider myself lucky to have attended there because what Lisa's talking about was in the mid 70s. And so when I was in preschool, it was the early 90s and just from what we've read as we've worked through this book, it sounds like it was really few and far between for schools to be like that in the 90s. So, Yeah, I would say from when Lisa entered, which we're going to talk about the way that preschools were becoming in the 90s to now, there were good preschools and there are good preschools now that are really play-based. I think that there's kind of a return to that. But now the problem is even worse because there is even more of a focus on the academics and teaching kids to read and, you know, all this stuff as early as three and four years old. So there is so much less play. For sure. And I even think I wish that parents knew how important play was because I think 
parents have maybe a knowledge gap about this, which I get why Lisa's like, have a binder, have something to back you up. Because I have friends who, you know, they're sending their two-year-old to daycare or to preschool. And I'm like, hey, this school is really great. You know, there's a lot of play. And they say, well, we really want an academic-focused program for our two-year-old. Why? <laughs> why? Well, yeah, I mean, there is a variety of programs, but it's like you have to be diligent as a parent to find something that aligns with what you're looking for. Let's get into chapter two. Lisa mentions that many teachers become teachers because of a teacher that they had. So it's important to never underestimate the importance of what you do. And you could be someone's pepper jack cheese. So don't forget that. <laughs> as she grew up, she knew she wanted to give back what she got. So she really wanted to create a place where children could explore and create and just be not be getting ready for something and hurried up or forced or pressured to develop past their years, just simply to be. And she kind of took a detour after school. She had like an acting career for a little bit and went to a performing arts college. But in her spare time, she was still volunteering with kids and nannying and babysitting. And she just kind of had like an aha moment where she's like, why am I not doing what I'm passionate about? So she left Chicago and went back to California, and that's where she decided she was going to become a preschool teacher. So she really wanted to create a place where 20-minute schedules would be replaced with long periods of uninterrupted free time and where timers and whistles would be tossed in the trash and there were no rule sheets all over the walls. She really felt it was important for her to be an advocate for children and to never forget what it was like to be little. And she also wanted to educate parents and give them permission to really trust their instincts and each other instead of being pressured by neighbors, well-meaning relatives, or the ever-present powerful media when they're making choices for their children. And I can tell you as a parent today, it is so hard sometimes to know what is the right thing to do. Yeah. So she graduated for school and she started interviewing and it just became clear to her that her plans were going to take some time. Like the childhood education environment that she was about to start her career in was very different from the one she experienced when she was a child. And she pretty quickly realized that the idealism of lab schools and college campus children's centers was pretty stark contrast to the reality of childcare. So all those amazing things we talked about, you know, in her preschool, the slides and bunnies and easels, mm -hmm. it was no longer the norm. So now it seemed like the early childhood environments were filled with long hours, no money for supplies, mail order curriculum, patterned art bulletin boards, horrible wages, pressure to be ready for kindergarten, tired and overscheduled children and frazzled parents. And, you know, I know she's speaking from the early 90s, but I would argue that many of those things are still the same. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I hope that mail order curriculum and stuff like that is no longer the norm. But I think overscheduled children and frazzled parents and pressure, those things all still exist. Yeah. So Lisa says that it seemed like while she was busy, like growing up, going to school and earning her degree, all of the Miss Marys of the world had been replaced by something she calls a laminated lady. Mm. And that is capitalized. <laughs> <laughs> so the first laminated lady that she encountered was the woman who was supposed to be her mentor at her first teaching job. So it was 1991. And she had lesson plans that were laminated from 1975. So it was a little outdated. And according to Lisa, if you're looking for a laminated lady, you can spot her because she'll be on the preschool playground standing away from the kids, spinning her whistle on a rope, just waiting to blow it and call all the children in from recess. They'll be inside the classrooms wearing keys around their necks, being like the keeper of the Play-Doh and the paper and the markers. 
and they have 12 boxes lining the back of the wall, each labeled January, February, March, etc., with the same activities that are done for each month, every month, with each class, every year. Ring a ding, speech therapists who do uh, <laughs> uh, month month activities. <laughs> Hold on, because in my notes I was like, okay, ooh, laminating ladies made me cringe a little bit because, of course, I see myself in some of those descriptions. Sure, but also I'm not just working with preschoolers. I do have the boxes with the months on them where I do keep things that I'm going to break out during that month. But that doesn't mean that every single kid does that. Activity, like I'm just like regimented, one size fits all. You know, we yeah. have to stay organized. Okay. We do have to stay organized. Don't get me wrong. I like a monthly themed activity too. Yeah. But-, but we do see it in the preschools. But then a lot of the preschool classes I worked in, even though they were play based, they were special education. And there was a focus on getting those kids ready just to to go with a routine because it was harder for them, you know? And so if you just did a lot of play-based, I mean, I don't know what the research is with special education kids on just a totally child-centered play-based learning environment for preschool versus one that is a little more routine-based. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure, but you know, the message remains that we should be flexible and we should be tailoring to each individual child, but don't be too hard on yourselves out there. (laughs) I'm with you. So Lisa says that laminated ladies are the bosses of nap time and the drill sergeants of circle time. And in their world, preschool is boot camp for kindergarten. So when Lisa was like, why are you doing this? Who taught you this? They told her times have changed, Lisa. It's not all fun and games like it was when you were little. We have to get the children ready for kindergarten now. We must do curriculum. (laughs) So she said after three weeks of being at this new job and apparently literally being put on a timeout, which I would love to hear that story. (laughs) Lisa's laminated mentor sat her down and told her she had better get with the program. So then we move into chapter three and she was trying to get with the program. And during her early months of teaching, she started to realize she still had so many questions. She was like, where are the mud pits and the shovels and the story times and the upright pianos? Which, by the way, as I was reading this, there was a very old school kinder teacher who retired from the elementary school that I worked at. And she must have been in her early 70s when she retired, late 60s. But she had an upright piano in her room and she still played it. And all the three kindergarten classrooms would go and sing. (laughs) My kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Trutna, had an upright piano. But I will say I went to kindergarten, you know, it wasn't like kindergarten. It was still playing. It was a lot of songs Mm. and play and snack time. And but, you know, we weren't there all day and we didn't have homework. You know, it was so different from I think I went to the good type. (laughs) Everyone's going to be thinking about their childhood now. Overanalyzing it. She was wondering if play-based teaching really no longer was accepted. And she was wondering if things had really changed so much. And she questioned why did she feel that she was the only one who thought things weren't right and should be different. So unfortunately, she was not yet strong enough to hold on by herself and stay true to play-based learning. So she fell down into the abyss of the laminated ladies. And she spent three years in there and got her own whistle and her own role of masking tape and the lineup lines and songs like wash, wash, wash your hands and traffic lights. We know them all. So she also said she had quite a collection of catchy phrases she used with the kids like I'm waiting, sit still, shh, be quiet. One, two, three, eyes on me. Get out of the bathroom. Why are you wet? And of course, crisscross applesauce. 
So Lisa started to question if getting with the program really was her cup of tea. And she started really questioning everything. She changed her mind about a lot of aspects of teaching. She found mentors. She read books about education, children, learning styles, and teaching philosophies. And she surrounded herself with people who thought like she did and gained herself some mentors. So this was where she first started to take her steps into a larger world. She changed her mind about a lot of things. So she wasn't telling kids to sit still and be quiet. She ripped up her masking tape lineup line and she kept her whistle to remind her of what she didn't want to be ever again. So she, at this point, really emphasizes change is hard and it takes time. So she says, you know, she didn't just jump up and fly out of the abyss. And the next time you find yourself faced with an opportunity to incorporate some new nugget of learning into your work, ask yourself, what part of this can I say yes to? So this mindset should help you as you take the baby steps that are required for real, effective, long-term change. And she herself tried new things, implemented new ideas, broke inappropriate habits, felt confident, assimilated to change, and took another step, uh, one after the other. So she would ask herself, what's working, what's not? And she really emphasizes that change should not be quick. There really needs to be a process of increased awareness and personal discovery. So this should be reflecting, not reacting. And she began to get clarity and see the direction she wanted to go. And everything kind of led back to Miss Mary and the teaching style she knew first. So moving into chapter four, she explained that what children really need is adults who are paying attention. So at the end of the day, it all comes down to the relationships that we form with children and their families. And children really need long periods of uninterrupted exploratory time, not 20-minute blocks that are regulated with kitchen timers. They need clay and Play-Doh, not pencils and computer keyboards. They need mud, sand, and water, not worksheets. They need outside time, not screens, especially not iPads with apps that promise to make kids <laughs> smarter. <laughs> but the troubling thing about most preschools and childcare centers is that policies and program decisions are typically not made by the people who actually have experience in child development. I know we've been seeing this on a national level with education policy and the people and the politicians who are making decisions really have no boots on the ground teaching experience. So that's the macro, but it's also happening at the micro. Many administrators, owners, directors, and principals are either older elementary people, fourth grade and up teachers, or business people. So this often looks like teachers wanting to provide engaging experiences and activities for the children, but the owners want to keep the carpet clean. And many early childhood educators end up quitting due to frustration while the directors are caught in the middle, playing referee between the demands and expectations of teachers, parents, and owners. So Lisa really started to realize that lip service paid to the needs of children and the power of play was not the same as actually doing it. There were many debates around the schools. So teachers struggled with other teachers, directors with owners, teachers with owners, directors with teachers, and parents with teachers. And Lisa realized it was time for her to move on. So she really needed the freedom to deepen her exploration and understanding of developmentally appropriate practice, her teaching style, and her philosophy. So at this point, she says, if you resonate with that and you find yourself in a similar position and you're aware that you've hit the ceiling on your current program that you're at, um, you have a couple of options. So you can pretend like you don't notice, but go home every day in tears, get migraines, and you know take ibuprofen all day. Or you can have a conversation with someone about where you find yourself in your professional journey and what you are feeling and observing, or you can quit. 
So Lisa notes that you need to deal with your problem as hard and uncomfortable as it may be. You really have no right to complain about anything if in fact you're not willing to do anything about it. So I think that's sometimes hard advice for us to take. It can be really scary to take a step away from something that you're so used to. But if something's not sitting right with you about your job or, you know, the philosophy of the place where you work, it may be time to do some self-reflection and figure out what the next step is for you. And Lisa herself was having a hard time finding a school where she fit. So she said that jobs really aren't frequently open at schools where the philosophy is the same as hers because people know they have a really good thing, so they don't want to give it up. Yeah. So her natural conclusion was she had to open up a family, child care, and her own home. Do it. Do it. Go Lisa. It. <laughs> That's the dream. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so that is it for introduction and chapters one through four. A lot of backstory on Lisa, but really setting the groundwork for the rest of the book. So we will see you next time as we discuss chapters five through nine. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us.